Welcome to the podcast version of Police Science Doctor, the online resource bridging the gap between research and investigative practice. For police personnel who go the extra mile. For academics who want to connect better with investigative practitioners. On YouTube and on policesciencedoctor.com. Hello and good evening, Police Science Doctor Tribe. This is Suzanne Knabenikol from policesciencedoctor.com, the website where we turn academic findings and research in the fields of intelligence, law enforcement, policing, military, anything else that's related to that, into things that can actually be used by practitioners. And as part of that mission, sometimes what I do is I interview somebody who's an expert in their respective field. And today is such an evening where I'm interviewing Chris Allen. Now, let me just read something about Chris Allen. He's a researcher, lecturer, consultant and commentator specializing in organized crime and how it operates. He has significant experience in lecturing on UK and international policing structures, as well as drug trafficking, cybercrime, human trafficking and firearms trafficking, amongst other subjects. He is currently honorary research fellow at the University of Buckingham and an associate lecturer at London Metropolitan Arden University. Concurrently, Chris is currently Director of Crimens Training and Consultancy Services, which provides a range of solutions to law enforcement universities and the private sector. As part of Crimens, he has been commissioned to write regular pieces on the latest organized crime trends for Policing Insight, recently publishing pieces on the financial impact of wildlife trafficking in West Africa and the drugs trade. So let me just see. It seems I'm having troubles Streaming to LinkedIn, that's obviously not good. Okay, I don't know if we're streaming to LinkedIn, but um, I hope we are. And um, Chris, welcome, welcome to the program. How are you? Thank you, Suzanne. Yeah, very well. Delighted to be here. Okay, so I read a bit about your bio, but um, why don't we start by you telling us um, yourself, who you are and why people might know you? Because that might be different from your bio. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, my name is Chris Allen. I've become, so I'm a yeah, researcher, lecturer, commentator, consultant, specialising in organised crime. So why, there's several reasons why I sort of might have popped up, because I've got quite a few different hats in terms of the in terms of different roles that I play. So I lecture, as I mentioned, there at the University of Buckingham, where I run the, um, the MA in Transnational Organised Crime, which is, of course, alongside... Professor Julian Richards, which I designed and focuses specifically on some of the elements of transnational organised crime. I'm also a, an associate lecturer at London Met, so I'm currently teaching organised crime there. So just finishing off a module to their master's criminal justice students, which has yeah, been a really fascinating experience, actually. And I also work for Liverpool John Moores University as a sessional lecturer and Arden University as well. In terms of the research, I've, um, I've recently completed a piece of research for John Moore's University funded by the Home Office, which was looking at um, so financial investigators and looking at some of the structures behind the policing of financial financial crime. And that was a really interesting, interesting project. I've also popped up doing research for City of London Police and Home Office. And what I also do is write I lead the organised crime coverage for a website called Policing Insight. So it's essentially looking at giving opinion pieces on the latest trends on organised crime. So looking at some of the big reports from people like Interpol, Europol, the Global Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I yeah, tend to write a couple of comment pieces a month on various trends in organised crime, which is, again, something I really enjoy because it gives me that freedom rather than an academic journal to sit there and try and actually examine some of these issues and 
actually posit some of the solutions as well. So yeah, I've got quite a few different hats as you might might have seen me floating around. Organised crime is quite a niche world, so you may, may well have seen me floating around. Well, the, the good thing about working in a niche is um, that, you know, that you'll become one of the few go-to experts on, on the field. And like you said, you publish for Policing Insight. Policing Insight is is something that that we in the, you know, in, in the industry know very well. I have They have published um, some of my articles as well. And you, you've interviewed me for Policing Insight um, a few months ago, haven't you? And um, that came out as well. So I'm just going to show you... Um, so you guys, so this is Criminist. This is your this is your own website. Just briefly tell us what what you've got on there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, so we we did Criminist is essentially the side of things that I do in terms of training courses and consultancy. So one of the projects we had over lockdown was working with um, the Ivory Coast. So that was a really interesting project of because it was um, I met someone at a conference a couple of years back who was the head of strategy for the Ivory Coast. Um, for the president of the Ivory Coast, and we designed a training course for focusing on organised crime and also intelligence that we were going to deliver to the police in the Ivory Coast. Unfortunately, a little thing called COVID had had something to do had a little thing to do with it for a nice spanner in the works with that one. But in terms, of that was sort of some of the stuff I do through Criminus. I also do then, yeah, training courses like the ones we're we're, we're talking about today on terms of. Drug, drug, drug trafficking, human trafficking, cybercrime, and also on the uh, U-Battle Toolkit, which is my um, an investigative strategy development tool, which looks at how organised crime operates as a business and how we can use business analysis to enhance investigations. Yeah. Okay. So whilst whilst this is um, a live interview, obviously we've got an audience watching. We've got people on Facebook, YouTube, and um, LinkedIn watching. If you've got any questions, um, guys, then if you want to ask Chris a question, please just type it into the comments. So there's the chat function wherever you're watching this, but start it with a Q, because um, you know if it's a comment, then um, the comment might be for your for your fellow watchers, and you guys might have some conversations and comments yourself. But if there's something that you would like to put me to Chris. And you would like me to put to Chris, then um, please start it with a cue and then I'll know that um, I'll be showing that to him. So today we're talking about organized crime and I know you're you're doing your PhD. You've got your um, Viva lined up in January. So hopefully that will all go well. We'll, you know, we'll keep our fingers crossed. But how did you become interested in organized crime? What led you to that? Yeah, it's an interesting. I came at it from a completely different perspective, actually, because my undergraduate degree is in journalism. So I studied journalism at Staffordshire University from was it 2011 to 2013 so and yeah that I did got two on in that and my during the training as a journalist what I want I'm a mad keen football fan I wanted to write about, about football at the time organized crime and policing wasn't even on the agenda so I spent most of my time at Stoke Uni following Stoke under 18s about to Newcastle and Sunderland and lots of cold places on wintry Wednesday nights and then afterwards I got a, so I from Oxfordshire and the first job I got in journalism was for Police Professional, which is a similar, similar publication to PC Insight. They were a printed printed magazine. And so I started covering policing for them. So I was writing, reading sort of some of these reports from the National Crime Agency, from Europol, from various, re, writing and interviewing senior police officers on a daily basis. And it sort of got me thinking, I was like, some of this stuff is really fascinating about sort of the causes of this, of the criminal of the crime behind it and some of the tactics that the police are using. And I wanted to sit there and I remember having a conversation with my boss and I was like, well, this is an 80 page report on, I think it was a vehicle crime, but I want to do a really in-depth feature on it. And he was like, no, you can't because we've got 
you've got three other stories throughout this afternoon, but you can't just sit and delve into this report. And it was then I realised I wanted to do it in a bit more depth. So I then saved a bit and did my master's degree for full time for a year at Coventry University. And that was in terrorism, international crime and global security. Once I came out of that, I then started working for the Police Foundation, which is a UK's policing think tank, which that was fascinating. I did some stuff on cybercrime with them, some stuff on neighbourhood policing. And following that, I then joined City of London Police as a researcher and analyst. And then from there, I, would, I got um, City of London to fund me a place at the Serious Organised Crime Conference, which I then met um, Dan Silverstone, who's a director at... Um, Liverpool John Moore's University Centre for Policing Studies. I mentioned uh, by that point I was sort of thinking about doing a PhD, looking at, I had an idea of what I wanted to write about, I just didn't want to pay for it. He suddenly said, actually, we've got a scholarship coming up, you should apply for it. I then did that and then from there I then transitioned fully into academia, lecturing, researching and left policing and latterly journalism behind. And um, so that, that's that's a bit of a varied story there from from football to journalism and um, actually wanting to read an 80-page report. I think that's what sticks, in, yeah, sticks out at me the most. You know, so that's a true analyst there for you. Um, definitely not something that I would be ex incredibly excited about, but I'm glad that you are because, you know, somebody, somebody's got to do it and somebody's got to understand these reports and then translate them into something more um, more pleasant for us or something less unpleasant. Um, anyway, yeah, that's a key thing of what I do for PC Insight, trying to summarize a hundred page report into a thousand word article. And I love, I think, was one of the reasons why I enjoy this role now because I love to read. I've got shelves sort of, you can't quite see it here, but in the office, there's just books of organized, especially during the pandemic when there's nothing else to spend money on. I just buy organized crime books off Amazon and just sit and read them. So, yeah, I have that ability. I'm glad to that people like you exist, stuff. Chris. I'm glad that people like you <laughs> exist. We need them. <laughs> Um, how does organised crime differ from other other types of crime that police and law enforcement deal with? I think the best comparison really is, so if you take something like murder, so homicide, the, there's a, a manual which is, for some reason, somebody has managed to leak it online. There's a two, if you go to Google now, there's the 2006 homicide, um, so the murder manual for police officers. And it details, from the NPIA? Yeah, from the NPIA. Which I think I've got a copy somewhere. Precisely how police investigate crime. I mean, if you want to reverse engineer that from a criminal perspective, then I'm not sure it should still be on the internet. But the point being that there is a manual for murder. There is, whether you've been shot in the head, whether you've been drowned, whether you've been thrown in a vat of acid, there is generally there are certain steps in the murder process that have to be followed each time. And yeah, so you have to gather your evidence, you have to look at DNA, ETC, ETC. But with organised crime, because it's such a multitude of crimes, it includes so many different sort of elements. So you've got drug trafficking, money laundering, you've got corruption, crime. There's so many different crimes that constituent, so that, yeah, that can make up organised crime. Therefore, there isn't a manual or a specific way of investigating it. And I think that's the key thing with organised crime. It's not, while we, we have a subject we call organised crime, there is no one definition of it. There is no one sort of element to it which makes it really makes it challenging to study but also really fascinating to study as well i mean you just said there's no definition of it can you give us a definition or your best definition <laughs> of it so you know okay, just just yeah, for people who are maybe working in completely different fields yeah. just they get an idea of what we're talking about here yeah well there's actually about 20 definitions of it which is Good. great <laughs> the, U the un have got a definition the 
the NCA have got a definition, Interpol have got one. Generally, it's more than the sort of standard sort of converged definition, more than three people working together in the pursuit of serious and in, in pursuit of, of activities that would generally constitute a, a sort of more than a, a three-year prison sentence. Generally, it's got, they've got to have that. They've got to be working together and they've got to be doing it on a regular basis and there's got to be more than three of them and it's got to be a reasonably serious activity. Yeah, there's, uh, so the definition that I read, they'd also said, oh, you know, they have to be collaborating over time. And that's what I said to my students when I was actually teaching um, teaching a lesson, organized crime. Use some of your material, by the way. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, I told them it has to be over time. It's not like Ocean's Eleven, you who come together for one project and then disband again. You know, it has to be something more more permanent than that. But then if you took that from Ocean's 13, when they've been together for three projects, you could then argue they become an organized crime group. Very Which, true. Very true. Yeah, I don't remember now. Fantastic lost set of films, actually. True. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, what are the, some of the common mistakes or missed opportunities by law enforcement when it comes to organized crime groups or organized crime investigations? I think the big one is treating it like it's one, one crime type. So again, like so, while the, so there is, we go back to the sort of murder point. So if you've got an organized crime group that you're investigating and they they're they're dealing drugs but as well as that they've got a protection racket and generally if they're dealing and drugs and they've got a protection racket they're making lots of illicit cash on the side and therefore there's there has to be some they've got to have some mechanism of taking that cash laundering it into the legitimate system and getting it out the other end again so there's got to be different strands of this investigation because of the because there's so many different elements to the OCG you can't just have there's not there's no one size fits all organized crime because it isn't one crime and that's i think the key bit to understand with there is no the reason why there isn't an organized crime investigation manual is because you can't have the same template for the template a template that works for an organized crime group based in italy that's selling fake leather jackets end up on a market in london is completely different to an organized crime group that's bringing 100 kilograms of cocaine from columbia via amsterdam completely different group and we'd call them both organized crime but the template and the activities and the, therefore the investigative plan is completely different. Well, that, that's a good point, actually. Could you maybe give us an, an overview of just some examples of, you know, you've you mentioned counter, counterfeit clothing and, and drugs, but what, what other things could we think of that are considered organised crime? Yeah, the key thing here is, is commodities. So any, anything that is a commodity can be, so if, if, if it's human trafficking, cybercrime, money laundering, fraud, and then you've got the whole range of, of, of drugs, and then you go into wildlife trafficking. So, in terms of ivory, in terms, of, I mean, there's a huge market for say illegal cheetahs, so or or rhino horn, or like venomous snakes, or that there is anything that where there is a demand, like like counterfeit medicines, for example, during COVID. Like, and if you can, any commodity you can think of that that people want to buy and sell, and there is an ability to do that while sort of bending the rules and going and doing it on a, on a even waste illegal waste management for example then organized crime can be involved in that the scale of activities is incredible which is why again it's so fascinating to study because one week you could be looking at opium smugglers from Afghanistan the next you could be examining how um, people are producing counterfeit whiskey in Azerbaijan We've got um we've got a question here. Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I'll, I'll but I'll show you, Chris, just in case you know um, 
you know what what he means. So this is Vince Wise. What do what due diligence do you personally carry out before carrying out work for a sponsor or employer? Um, so I think the key thing there is is yeah, information is power at the end of the day. So what you'd have to make sure, like I think what Vince is talking about there is if you were organized crime, use it is very similar to legitimate business, and a lot of them use fronts to actually set up these sorts of business so you could if you were a private consultant for example you have to be very careful that the people you're actually working for and when this if they've commissioned you to design i don't know a really efficient anti-money laundering plan what you what they're not actually doing is actually they're actually actually going to use those holes holes and then turn it into a really efficient money laundering scheme so yeah you have to be very careful a lot of the work that criminalist does is generally done through recommendations so if, sort of through if somebody knows that i've done something in the past or if i've worked with somebody who has worked with somebody else perhaps used to be in the university sector or used to be in that policing sector so there has to be there's that sense of of trust linkedin is really useful for that actually because you can google a name and you can work out well okay they know this person that person and that person if i give that person a call i can say right what are they like what are they doing now are they who they say they are And I think that's a key thing when it comes to organized crime because of the sophistication of some of these groups. Okay, yeah. Vince, I hope that has answered your your question. Um, any other questions, please just um, put them in the chat. Um, start, you know, put a queue in front of it so I know that it's, it's a question for Chris. Um, I've got a question for you, Chris. What has changed in organized crime over the past few years? How has it morphed, evolved, um, evolutionized? I don't know if um, there's a verb for evolution. Evolved, yeah. How has it evolved? I already said that. <laughs> I think there's one word really, Suzanne, and it's cybercrime. Okay. As the world has, we've got more digital. I mean, that the process of digitalization and globalization started in the 70s, where suddenly, like, what happened was the event of cheap air travel meant we could actually go to some of these places like New York and stuff in five or six hours. Suddenly, like, the internet's come on, and you can, you can, I could, I, I could be doing this from a beach in Thailand and still have the, the same. In, impact i mean i'm not i'm doing it from cold oxfordshire but like in terms of like how yeah some of the evolutions like an organized crime it's made legitimate business more efficient globalization and technology but it's also made organized crime more efficient as well because it's allowed and covid19 is a perfect example suddenly there's been as the nhs started to, to bring out all this um preventative stuff in terms of covid so in terms of the Uh, people being pinged in terms of them sending safety advice, in terms of um, them sending out details of when people need to book jabs. Suddenly, all these fake websites sprang up, all these fake text messages saying, 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 actually, if you go onto this website and put in your personal details, we'll tell you when you can get your jab. And what they've done there is suddenly organized crime are preying on people's fear of the pandemic and using it to take people's details, and then they can harvest harvest those details. And Yeah, in reality, like as the world gets more digitized, organized crime is only going to get more efficient because we're putting more and more of our personal data into the digital world. Well, my next question is, and I don't know if you're going to tell me off or not, uh, what is the most efficient way of dealing with organized crime? Um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's no one way because those it depends. If you're group of, dealing with a group of money launderers in the city of London, for example, or money laundering launderers in Abu Dhabi. Like, 
that will be a completely different approach to dealing with a street gang in Nottingham or a bunch of um, cannabis dealers in Morocco. Like sometimes community intervention is really useful. Sometimes, like for example, if you were to look at the um, uh, Colombian in Colombia, where if you can give the Colombian farmers or the Afghan opium producers something else that they can make as much money off of with opium, and bearing in mind that generally opium and coca plant are pretty much the only sources of income in those places, you give them an alternative that can make them that amount of money, the same amount of money that they can live on without it being illegal, then a lot of them will move over. But if there isn't that alternative, then they're going to have to continue to take take the illegal route. And it's the same thing in terms of... Um, yeah, it, it's a, in terms of policing as well. So, like, sometimes sometimes a investigation where you go in and arrest and knock doors down is the most efficient way of doing things. If there is an organised crime group that's causing trouble, then importing lots of cocaine, for example, and sometimes it's the most efficient way to do it is, right, OK, we're going to arrest these people, and therefore that sends a message that we're not going to tolerate this sort of thing in the community. I think there's that balance between the community measures and the policing measures, and it all depends on what sort of organised crime activity you're dealing with. Do you have an example? I'm going to put you on the spot here now, Chris. Do you have an example of your of a very memorable investigation that you maybe worked on or heard of, you know, something that you found really fascinating or that for some for whatever reason really stuck with you that you can share with us? I think the so there's a really interesting one. So when I was developing the U Battle framework for the PhD, it was so I ended up doing a case based on, so you might have seen the, there was some newspaper coverage a couple of years back around lots of um, burglars from Chile coming over from Chile on 90-day visas, ransacking UK houses for 90 days and then going back on the same visas again. So I ended up working with um, the Met Police on and doing some analysis for that and also working with through the a contact at the Chilean embassy also with some of the, with the Chilean police as well. And it was really interesting in terms of the cooperation side of things that how much we the, the police knew and a lot of the stuff that the police knew was actually based on open source and that for, for me is really fascinating that while yes the police have their own databases and intelligence stuff there's also a huge amount some of the stuff they were showing me that was part of their investigation was that they were quoting something that was secondhand from an international newspaper and the same thing in terms of intelligence gaps when you go over to the Chilean side like they what they didn't know was almost as important as what they did know as well and I think that's really important in terms of once you analyzing a situation is then important to then try and determine what the response is because every situation is different tell us a bit yeah so you mentioned you battle here tell us what that is so that's a tool that you developed what does it do and what is it used for uh so yeah you battle it's an acronym, so anyone who works in police, who has worked in policing knows, policing absolutely adores an acronym, so something has yeah. to have an acronym, otherwise it doesn't get into policing. So it stands for Utilising Business Analysis Towards Targeted Law Enforcement. And it's essentially a series of questions based on adapted versions of techniques, so business, standard business analysis techniques, Porter's Five Forces, McKinsey's 7Ss, and I've adapted them and applied them to uh, a intelligence data and the idea being that we approach organized crime from a business perspective therefore looking at the vulnerabilities of an organized crime group from a business perspective 
and that then informs the development of an investigative strategy from a policing perspective and makes it more efficient when we try and dismantle them. Okay, well, that's that seems to make sense. Um, and well done for developing that. And that's something that um, we'll we'll talk that that's something you teach in your course as well. That we'll we'll get to in a minute. Um, what do you think is the, the what does the, what do you think does the future look like for organized crime? If you can make any such predictions, I think there's huge challenges in terms of policing organized crime, particularly when we look at the international cooperation. I think that's one of the going to be the main issues in the future. I mean, you look at Brexit, whereas we've now essentially become a, a third third country member of Europol. So we've lost a lot of the influence we had in terms of sharing information, in terms of collating analysis. And as a result of that, that weakens our international response because criminals, like if you take cybercrime, for example, a criminal could, quite, could be sat on a beach in Thailand and they could be um, spamming, sending thousands and thousands of malware requests out and attacking various computers through a botnet. And that botnet could be based in another country, say in Israel. And that, that the service for that, for where they're getting it off the dark web, could be based in Pakistan. And then you come back and actually some of the victims are in Italy, France, Germany. Say for the, for the cyber criminal to jump through those hoops into different jurisdictions takes a few seconds. Because the advent of the internet, you can go to different websites in different jurisdictions with ease. From a policing perspective, if you're trying to follow that breadcrumb trail to go from Thailand to Israel to Pakistan to Italy, each of that time you then, if you once you go into a trying to have an investigation that is on there, that country's sovereign territory, that becomes incredibly difficult. You have to write a letter of request. You have to make sure that you're following the, to formally a, approach the relevant law enforcement authorities. That takes months, and if law enforcement, if the Cyber criminals have done that seven, eight, nine times. Investigation is almost a non-starter. And I think there was a really interesting report by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, written by a couple of Canadian academics from, I think, a university in Vancouver. And they set out several scenarios of what organized crime cooperation would look like. Because currently the sort of the UN system where everyone comes together, says, this is what we need to do to org against organized crime. Some people then go back and implement it. Some people go back and ignore it. And because it's the UN and they don't have any real power, nothing really happens either way. So then you have regional blocks like Europol, which can be really effective. But then we, some people like, because of political reasons, people like the UK, who has generally have a quite a stellar reputation in terms of investigating organized crime and intelligence, are leaving those regional blocks. And then you have countries like Russia, China, North Korea, who are essentially shunning the international community and says, saying, right, it doesn't matter what you guys do, we're doing what's best for us. And that, how that plays out in the globe, in sort of the global geopolitics over the next decade, I think it'll be fascinating for organised crime, whether the world tries to stick with, sticks with international cooperation, whether it devolves to regional, wherever everyone goes, these international structures aren't, work, aren't working, we're gonna, it's every man for himself, or whether we try and agree some brand new strategic vision which will try and reach out to to, to countries around the world and have a, an effective global way of combating organised crime. I think that will be fascinating to watch and what to see how it unfolds in the future. Well, that's, that's a massive um, imbalance there, isn't that, in terms of 
power and opportunities. Like you say, somebody could be sitting on a beach and could be offending in a number of countries against a number of laws. And they can, they can do that, you know, just, just with, with um, typing on the keyboard. But then, like you say, for an investigator to follow that, they have to apply to other countries to get the data, to get permissions. And it's just a nightmare. And I think as long as that red tape exists, we're always going to be woefully behind. And we are, we are usually woefully behind many many criminals, aren't we? Because we can't adapt because of all these procedures. You know, we need to apply for budgets. We need to apply for permission. We need to apply for this. And it can just take ages. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the, the processes, the rules and the, yeah, said the red tape that law enforcement has to follow is a huge inhibitor to, to, to try and counteract. You can understand why it was put in place in the first place, of course, but mm. because organised crime doesn't have to follow that, they're so much more freer and flexible means policing is always on the back foot when trying to counteract this yeah so but you know in terms of what we are able to do you've actually put some of that knowledge together into into a course that is now on the police science doctor academy i'm just going to show you the image for that can you just tell us a little bit about this course what um what what do people get from that so if analysts and investigators come onto that what will they learn yeah so essentially it's um a two-module course eight weeks per module. Each week will be will have three hours of coverage and it'll be live online. So we get you get that real world interaction like you would do it you would do if you were face to face, but it's much easier for you to to um, fit it in with your sort of your challenging challenging policing job and, and the rest of your life as well. And it's also recorded if so for if for whatever reason you can't make one week there will be a a, back, um, a digital copy you can come and access as well. So I think, yeah, the first module is looking at organised crime and how it's policed. So it looks at some of the, the international policing structure, structures, so from a regional, local, national, international perspective. It then moves on to look at some of the, the tactics, some of the investigative methods and some of the case studies to use in organised crime. Also looks at analysing organised crime. So what we know about it in the minute, what we don't know, it looks uh, also when we introduce the U-Battle framework for investigative strategy development. And the second model is much more focused on the actual crimes that define organised crime. So we do sessions on drug smuggling, we do sessions on human trafficking, on cybercrime, money laundering, on um, outlaw biker gangs, I think. There's, there's a whole range of criminalities. We also look at wildlife trafficking, and essentially each section is, each session, sorry, is, so the first section session is a lecture. So it's a more, more, quite an interactive session where I sort of give an overview of the topic and then we sort of we go through some of the, the key trends and some of the reasons behind that. And then the second half of the session is then a seminar where we discuss some of the key points, some of the challenges around that start to try and develop some ideas about actually how to counteract some of the threats we've um we've sort of outlined in the session and i think that's the key thing about this like yeah, it's all about actually yeah learning about a really fascinating new area and then applying that knowledge back into a policing context to actually make a difference in the real world yeah, and maybe as you've seen that from the poster that i that i over post over your face while you were explaining everything so it's um so, so the plan is to run weekly sessions from January. So that'll be module one. It'll, that will last for eight weeks. And then in April, we start module two. That will last eight weeks. And you can either do both modules or you can only do one. 
or the other. And you can also, if only certain sessions are relevant to you, you can also, you know, just um, just get single sessions and just wait for these to be um, for these to be delivered. And um, so it's it's really really flexible i mean extremely flexible because like you said you can turn up live obviously that will be the preference because you can then interact and um, get involved in the discussion and everything or you can watch the recording afterwards you know if based on your time zone you can't you can't make it um what what would you say are the unique features of this course you know and when you compare it to other courses on organized crime perhaps what what is different about this one i think although i'm going to stretch the definition of unique here i think there are three unique features like in terms of so firstly we've talked about flexibility so yeah this is a the way of delivering it we've got it online we want we'll have it on a certain time each week and we can have that live discussion but if you can't make that then it's recorded so there is that huge that balance there we appreciate that policing is it's a fascinating profession to be in but sometimes things don't go to plan and sometimes when you say to someone you meet at five o'clock an operation comes up and you can't meet at five o'clock because you're yeah because because of other commitments and we totally understand that secondly the detail like we can go in depth into the mechanics of drug smuggling for, for example you can take you through the precise criminal requirements that go from smuggling cocaine from from uh, 100 kilogram load from bogota and how it gets to right across into uk and then how from there it gets split up into different parcels and actually moves out and gets delivered into various towns and cities across the UK. That level of detail isn't available on in many other courses. And I think the key thing, the preferred unique element is the cost because while there are so, for example, master's degrees you can do in in trans, in, in organized crime, these, the cost of those is, is sort of generally in the region of seven, eight, nine thousand pounds because universities have lots of overheads, they have, and yet and it, the actual course costs money to be authorized to be checked and everything else like that so as a result of that that's these courses because you get a certificate with a nice shiny little label on it that says you've got a master's degree but then that costs you nine grand we can have the same level of sort of um of detail the level of academic rigor the level of and particularly make it a lot more relevant to practitioners but we can do it for for sort of a tenth of the price, you know, the, the beauty of the fact that we do we can do it as a professional short course. You get your sort of you've done your qualification in organised crime, but because it doesn't have those two little what the MA for example in there and the certificate from the university means we can actually make it much more affordable affordable for the practitioner. And you do get a certificate at the end as well. So after, um, you know, if you're only doing one session, you, you'll get a certificate. If you're doing the, a module or two modules, you get a certificate as well from the from the academy that has a sh my shiny logo and uh, your shiny logo on it. So yeah, you know, exactly. You get that and that well. also counts towards your CPD points as well if you're yeah. a police officer. So okay, so we've got a question here from Sam. Um, how many hours of lectures do the course um, does the course cover in total? So lectures we'd have, so each module says so eight sessions in the module and lectures are generally two hours of each three hours. So you'd have 16 hours, so 32 hours for the entire course in total and then 16 hours on top of that of seminars and discussion. 
Yeah, because what's what's also in there is that you've got um, some resources, things that um, people should and could read, obviously, to, to further deepen their knowledge. And then the other thing, I don't think you've mentioned that, is after after each session, learners are actually required to summarize their understanding of what you just taught them and and hand that into the academy. And then you will you will actually check that. So again, we're we're trying to make sure that people get a really good understanding of what you're teaching them, that they walk away with. Um, with a good level of knowledge because you know we all know what it's like when you passively listen to something and you know even if you get involved in the discussion afterwards if you then have to sit down and go through everything that you've just listened to and understood and you have to write it out that you know that just gets your brain juices flowing again so that that's another requirement and you know to make sure that yeah, you get that, a good understanding there that active element is a key because i mean yeah. i've been on courses when i was with city of london police where you don't it's impossible to actually fail them because what happens you get sent on a three-day course and then you finish with an exercise and they go oh great everyone's passed like you have to have that element of should to show an understanding like to say right this is what we've learned this is how it applies otherwise there's no value in in attending a course you need to to, to have actually to have learned something and to have proved you've learned learned, learned something as well yeah, and, and actually, you know, in terms of learning theory, it's much better to do um, bits of learning over time, repeated over time, rather than, you know, going like like you said, on a three-day course, because you, you only walk away with about 10% of, you know, you only remember about 10% of what you learn in classroom-based training. And, you know, if 10% of your three days is not that much, but if you're if you're doing something weekly and then, you know, you're going over it and then, then you have to, you have to type something up and, and submit it. And then you do the next one. You get, you get a much better learning experience that way as well. Okay. So, um, yeah. So if you've got the, the link to the website there, if you go to www.academy.policesciencedoctor.com, you will see all the course options there. So it's either two full modules or one of any, any one of the modules, or you can just pick and choose which session is most relevant to you. You know, if you don't want to, for example, if your employer is not paying for it and you just want to, to work on your own professional development, you can, you can definitely afford um, the single sessions there. Um, so Chris, if you had a magic wand, and you can make one. Ch you could make one change in policing. What would that be? I mean, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is to give them a proper research budget to engage in academia. <laughs> so that actually, I think there's so much work that having been in the police and now in academia as a lecturer and a researcher, researcher, a lecturer and a researcher. Like I think there's that's what's really key is there's so much knowledge in academia and so much willingness in academia to go and find out what these intelligence gaps are for example in money laundering and drug trafficking but the police and, and police want to engage and there's a lot of really good people in policing who would bite bite your left arm off to have a team of academics delve into their data and work out some of the nuts and bolts of what they know and what they don't know about a certain element of organized crime and how could they could improve it but as we all know that there's there just isn't the resource for some of these large-scale projects. And if we could change that, I think policing in the UK would be in a much better place because we would be able to real, really bring that academic rigour in. And from that, the, the benefits of that would just fall out. Mm. And if people only took away one thing from this interview, what would you want that one thing to be? That you know, What would you want the 10% that they retain from this interview to be? I mean, well, aside from the fact that I'm running the course in January and that they should all sign up, I think that'd be the first thing. But probably that once you understand, once you start to understand organised crime and how it operates, the problems around policing it don't seem quite so in intractable as they as they did. And I think that's the key bit 
we can start to we can give you the knowledge base to start to try and solve the problems that you see in your everyday working life. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'll I'll leave I'll leave you guys with that. Um, so, Chris Allen, thank you very much for your for your time today, and um, we'll you know we'll hope to see some or many of you on the course. So do have a look www.academy.policesciencedr.com, and if you've got any questions, you know just just send us an email, and um, we'll we'll hope to see you there. So have a good night, everyone. Bye bye. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this content useful. You can get access to each episode's transcript with key learning points, timestamps, and references if you get yourself onto my mailing list. Just go to the main website on policesciencedoctor.com and on the bottom of each page you will find a sign-up form for notifications of new content. Just enter your first name, your preferred email address, and the type of organization you work for. You will not get any spam. This is just for me to let you know about new content and for you to get access to all the transcripts. 